Our God is good, our God is gracious, and life and grace flow from his throne. It does. He is pouring it out richly, looking for those whose hearts will receive it, who will receive his truth, breathe in his grace, and be transformed by it. Amen? He is doing that right now. He's looking across this room for those who will freely and openly receive what he has given, what he has breathed out, looking for us to breathe it in so that we can breathe it out in grace for others. Amen? This is what he's looking for, and this is what we want to be as a church, a people who will freely receive his grace. We're not trying to compete and give back. We're not trying to... Let me explain that. We're not trying to give more than he has given. Do you know that sometimes our trying to impress him gets in the way of receiving what he's given to us? You see what I'm talking about? Sometimes we get so caught up in thinking, I got to give to him, I got to give to him, that you never stop and receive from him. And if you're not receiving from him, you won't be able to give back to him. That's just a little sidebar here this morning. So God has designed us so that we would receive what he has given in life, grace, redemption, forgiveness, peace in our hearts. And he has designed all of creation to be a reflection of his greatness and our need to receive. Your own body has been designed by God, your physical body. In Psalm 139, David wrote, he said that, he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He uses the words skillfully wrought. Now, you and I don't use wrought much today unless we're talking about some fruit that's been in the refrigerator for too long. (laughs) But it's actually the word that means to be carefully engineered, delicately and precisely woven together. It's a word that is much like our word for uh, our idea, at least, of embroidery. If you've ever sat down and done some embroidery yourself or watched someone else, it takes great skill and detail. God has woven your body together as a reflection of his design. Even your respiratory system, your breathing system, which is made up of your nose and your mouth and your throat and your larynx or windpipe and your lungs are all engineered by him. That is not a product of evolution. That didn't just ooze into place. It came into being by the skillful hand of God. He designed you for that. He designed your ability to take in a deep breath. He designed you in such a way so that that breath would come in through your nose. It would come into your windpipe. It would come into your lungs. And there would be purpose in all of that. God has uniquely and carefully designed us to reflect his glory. Let's talk about the lungs for just a moment this morning. They play a significant role in your respiratory system, in breathing. Because your lungs take in oxygen 
And there, they have the incredible responsibility and role of taking that oxygen and transferring it into your blood. It happens inside your lungs. It's happening right now. God has designed it to happen that way. You breathe in and oxygen comes in, moves into your lungs and your lungs transfer that into the blood and your heart pumps that blood to every part of your body. Life is in the oxygen. Life comes in, into the lungs, pumped out by the, the heart, into every part of your body. And then the lungs at a pace that you and I can't even comprehend, take that same blood that has been used and it comes back up into the lungs by the pressure of the heart and it removes toxins from your body. So you breathe out from your mouth carbon dioxide. What an incredible wise God we have. We would breathe in oxygen it would go into our bloodstream, into every part of our body. It would move back out through the lungs, and we would breathe out carbon dioxide. Life comes in, toxins go out. It's fascinating in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 17, that God would instruct Moses to write, life is in the blood. It's there in the Old Testament. God had it ordained and designed that our bodies would have a process for breathing in life, oxygenating our blood, moving it to every system that we have so that you and I might have life. Now, if there begin to be breathing issues, it begins to affect the entire body. That is one of the reasons that COVID has been so difficult because it affects the respiratory system. It affects the lungs. And if you can't breathe in life, and if your lungs can't take that life and transfer it to every part of your body, then every part of your body will begin to feel the effects of that. And people have struggled with COVID at different levels. Some have had very difficult times. Some, it has even caused death. And it's because it has cut off the ability of their body to have life enter the blood and go to every system in the body. So when I had it and I reached a place that I needed to get to the hospital, they began to run a series of tests. These are pretty common tests for anyone with COVID or with any other breathing issue. There's four tests that they ran. The first of those was an EKG. They wanted to check the rhythm and beat of my heart to see that it had not been affected. They ran a chest x-ray to see the quality of my lungs, to see if there had been fluid buildup or if there was any kind of infection or any kind of problems with my lungs. Because if the lungs can't oxygenate the blood, if the heart can't pump the blood, it causes some severe problems. They also took some blood from me that day and they ran some tests on that blood because they wanted to see how much toxin was in the blood. Because if they could tell if there was infection or bacteria in the blood, they could know that my body wasn't functioning properly. And then they did a fourth thing that they actually do the minute you walk in. The minute you go in, there's a little triage set up there. They take a pulse oximeter 
and they apply it to your finger, it's painless. But what that does is it measures the amount of oxygen in your blood, the amount of life flowing into your blood to see how well your lungs are functioning, to see if oxygen truly is coming in, getting to the lungs, and getting into the blood. So I brought one this morning. This is the pulse oximeter I bought because it becomes critical if you're a COVID patient, even at home or any other struggle you have with breathing, to have a pulse oximeter. This is what told me I need to get out of the house and go seek some help. So what this does is it measures the percentage of oxygen in your blood. A baseline that's healthy is 95. If it drops below that, you might want to be a little careful and you might want to get to a doctor. So 95 to 100, 97, 98, it's great in that range. There were a couple of times for me where I was struggling to get it to 92, to get it to 90. That meant oxygen was not getting into my blood at the rate that it needed to, and that begins to cause other problems. So I thought I would show you what this looks like this morning. I know you can't see it, but Taylor is going to take my phone, and she's going to show you on screen. Yeah, come around the side. All right. There you go. There's my oxygen saturation at 98, <laughs> praise God. And there's my heart rate racing because I'm up here walking around and talking real fast, all right? So don't get too alarmed. If I was sitting down for a long time, it would drop much lower, but that's what happens when you're up here. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. This is measuring through a light that is in this little device. It's looking into my skin and measuring the amount of oxygen that is there. So it's telling me, I'm doing pretty good today. All right, thank you, Taylor. Give her a hand. Good job. Uh, that thing became my friend and my enemy when I had COVID because, you know, you think, oh, boy, I need to do this. Here we go. And you put it on, and you're kind of nervous because you don't want it to be low, and which makes you breathe faster and shorter, shallow breaths, and that doesn't help at all. So I'm like, okay, God. So, you know, there were times it was good. There was a couple times that it wasn't, and I was like, okay, Heather, we need to go. And we went and got help. The pulse oximeter becomes one of those ways of measuring life. So these four tests that I told you about, they're essential when someone's having some breathing issues because that's not one of those things you toy with. It's not one of those things you wait on. It's not one of those things that you can overlook. They become ways to check our vital signs, the signs that reveal how much life is in us how well we are. So in this series, as we've talked about the importance of breath and breathing, it is not strictly a physical science or health class. That's not why we're here. But God has designed our physical body to be a picture of a greater reality in our spiritual person. And he has intended for us to be his people who breathe in his grace. Riches are flowing from him today, right now, for his people. And he intends for us to not resist, fight, or try to compete with what he is giving us, but instead to breathe it in 
and we should be evaluating our breathing periodically. You might not like to take up your spiritual pulse oximeter and see how well you're doing, but it's helpful from time to time. It's why the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians and say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It's not to scare us. It should be one of those moments that causes us panic or grief. It should be one of those moments that says, I want to see how well I am breathing in what God has breathed out. I want to see how much of his grace and riches I'm actually receiving. I want to see if it's moving through the systems in my body and it shows up. So today our message is called Check Your Vital Signs. So welcome to the vertical spiritual ER today. I hope you'll relax. We're going to run some tests today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture because our Lord Jesus Christ wants you to be breathing in forgiveness. He doesn't want you to carry around the baggage and weight of your sin. He wants you to breathe in release from all your guilt. He wants you to breathe in the full acceptance that's yours in him. Which, by the way, let me just say this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. Amen? He's fully accepted by him, loved by him, blessed by him, sharing all riches with him. Amen? If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ... Though you are seated this morning here at Vertical Church or in your living room watching us today, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are also seated in Christ. You are seated in him next to the Father, receiving all that Jesus has, full love, full acceptance. You don't have to fear he's going to leave you. You don't have to fear he's not going to give to you. He's pouring out to you. He's looking for those who will breathe all of that in. Yeah, and not resist, not push away. Not make excuses, but breathe in. He wants you to breathe in that he has redeemed your life. He wants you to breathe in that you have been declared blameless, righteous, holy, chosen, adopted, and one with him. Now, right away, I know what's happening right now. You're resisting the fact that he's called you blameless and holy and righteous. Watch it. Don't resist what he has breathed out and who you are in Jesus Christ. We're checking some vital signs this morning. Those are all things that I have to receive by faith. Because if I try to measure it by my own standards, if I try to measure it by how good I've been this week, how holy I've been this week, I'll come up short. But my standing with God is not based on my performance this past week. My standing with God is based on Jesus Christ's performance before the Father. That's where I rest, and that's what I breathe in today. That's why you have to come by faith. That's why you don't come by your efforts, by your own abilities. You come strictly by faith to breathe in everything he has. That's why it's important to check your breathing. Are you breathing in what he has given out? Here's what Scripture says about itself as being part of God's breath. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration, which in the Greek means the breath of God, It really does. God has breathed out his word. The scriptures have been given to us as a a breath of God breathed out from him, and it's profitable. It's, it's, It's significant. There's reward to it for doctrine, for truth, 
That's what it means for truth and showing us here's what it looks like when you're breathing properly for reproof, for correction that comes sometimes to say, you know, you're not breathing in as deeply as you need to. For correction to say, here's what it would look like if you really were breathing, and I'm going to make these adjustments for you to get to that place. And instruction in righteousness. Now, here's how you walk forward in breathing properly. The verse that follows this tells us why God has given us his word, why he has breathed out, what he wants to accomplish in breathing into us. His word has been breathed out. He intends for us to breathe in for this purpose. Verse 17, that the man of God or woman of God, this stands for all who believe, which are just two genders, by the way. The man of God, the woman of God may be complete, that you may have everything that you need, that you may be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. God has intended and designed you to breathe in faith, everything that God says, and breathe out good works for others. He's intended for you to breathe in what he has done in you and then breathe that life out so that it benefits others and it transforms you in the process. This is what life is. Breathing in and breathing out. Faith coming in, good work going out. Now don't get that backwards because you're not saved by work you did for him. You've been saved by grace for him but designed for good works. It's important people get that backwards and whole denominations are based on that whole idea of if you do enough works, then you can be saved. Wrong. Only Jesus Christ could do the work that was necessary to buy our salvation. And we come by faith to breathe that in. And then it has an effect in our life that causes us to have evidence and good that comes from our life. You can't just say, well, I've breathed in faith. but I'm not going to breathe it out. <laughs> Eventually you bust. If you have truly breathed in life from him, it'll show up in your life in some very tangible ways. And you can't say, oh, of course I've breathed him in. I've breathed in his forgiveness. I've breathed in his grace. I've breathed in his peace and not breathe that out. Well, this is where our vital sign check goes today. So turn with me. Here's our real passage today is James chapter 2. Now, the book of James is located toward the end of the New Testament, but it's actually one of the first letters that was written in the New Testament. And James, just for example, is, um, or just for, by way of illustration, James is the kind of personality and guy. He's that friend that you have that you can call up and you know they're going to shoot straight with you. Everybody's got at least one of those in your life, Right? That person who's just going to say it like it is. That person who's not going to pretend, put on. That person who's not going to be flowery and, and just overlook the truth. James is that kind of guy. He's the guy that you can always count on for an honest answer, even though it may be a little bit uncomfortable when he first says it, right? James is that kind of guy. So when you read through his letter that he writes, he's pretty straightforward about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about the necessity of breathing in and breathing out. Verse 14, here's where he starts in our passage for today. James asks a question that's very relevant and pointed. He says, what does it 
profit or benefit or what's the point, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Mm. Here we are, asking a very relevant question. Is it possible for someone to say, I have faith, but there is no evidence or demonstration coming forth from their life that proves that faith? If that's the case, can that man really be saved? Is he really born again if he has said he has faith, but there's no evidence in his life? That's a pretty important question. Can someone go to church, have a Bible, read the Bible, say they believe, check a box, be baptized, join the church, can they do all of those things but their life not have any other demonstration in it that they believe? If that's the case, can that person really be saved? James asks the question. In a sense, he's asking, can someone breathe in and never breathe out? It seems ridiculous to even ask. It's interesting the word that he uses here, can faith save him? It's a word for rescue. In other words, can this faith that you say or that someone says they have, does it rescue them? Because this is what faith is designed to do. Faith is designed to rescue you from your past, your sin, your guilt, your selfishness, your old ways, your fears, your anxieties, your depression, your perspective on the world that is has no bearing of God in it. Can faith save someone like that? Of course it can. But he's asking the question, what if a person doesn't have any demonstration in their life? Faith is intended to save them. But the question is, can it? If they have no evidence in their life. Instead of just giving a flat out no, which is the answer, by the way, James is going to tell a story. So he goes on in verse 15. Here's what he says. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, now before we go on, let's just get the picture here. James says a brother or sister, this is someone you know, someone that's known very well. They're close. They're brother or sister. They're either family or they're within the fellowship of believers and James says, if you see someone like that, or someone did see someone like that in this hypothetical situation, and they were naked, they didn't have clothes, and they were destitute of daily food, they didn't have enough for today. I don't mean they didn't have enough for later in the week. They didn't have enough for right now. This person's in a desperate situation. And in this hypothetical situation, James says, if that's the case, and someone were to say to them, in verse 15, the second half, if this person says, hey, just uh, why don't you depart in peace, uh, be warmed and filled, he tries to give, us, give them some flowery words, some encouraging words, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, 
What does it profit? In other words, if you say, hey, I see your situation. I see you're in a pretty desperate situation right now. You don't have enough to keep yourself warm. You don't have enough food. Peace be to you. Blessings upon you. And then you encourage them to leave. In that moment, you said something with your words, but you had no action that proved it. You said, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you didn't do anything to help them with that. You said one thing, but you did another. And James says, where's the profit in that? Where's the benefit in that? What's the point if you're going to say one thing, but not do that thing? What's the point of saying it if it's not true for your actions? You know there's real benefit in the action of faith. There's something that happens in the moment that you live it out. You lift it up and you live it out. There's something that happens in that moment where it becomes very, very real. I can talk about what it means to give to someone in need, for me to give sacrificially, for me to give of what I have. I can talk about that, but there's something that happens in you when God speaks to you and says, I want you to give this amount to that person. And when you do that, when you write that check, go to the, the debit machine and get some cash, and you actually give it to them, there's something happens in me in that moment. There's this moment where my faith becomes real. There's this moment where I get to experience what it's like to be like Jesus in that moment. There's something about the experience that's in the action and not the talk. And if you talk and there's no action, what profit is it? What benefit is it to you and what benefit is it to them? What benefit is for you to say something to someone who's in need, but you don't do something for someone who's in need? What's the point of saying, I love you to your spouse if you're absent, critical, Distant, angry, vindictive, and self-absorbed. What's the point? What's the point of saying something and not doing the same? What's the point of saying to your children, I love you kids, but you're never home. You're never involved. You're never engaged. You're not interested in their life. You're more interested in what they can do for you. They're a bother. They're a disturbance. What's the point of you saying I love you if you don't have any evidence of that love in your life? What's the point of saying you believe in forgiveness, but you remain bitter, angry at the people who've hurt you? You're vindictive. You want to see them pay. You want to see them hurt. You're, you stay sour all the time. What's the point? What's the point of saying it if you're not living it? What's the point of having it in your mouth if you're not living it out in your life? This is a question James is asking. What's the point? And here's what James says. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's the spiritual analysis. There's no breath coming out of this person. They're dead. James is that guy I told you. He's going to shoot straight with us. And James says, you can say you believe, 
You can say you have faith. You can talk about all that you do. But the real evidence will show up in your life. Our first point this morning, saying you have faith is not a vital sign of spiritual life. Whew, it just gets a little uncomfortable all of a sudden here in the exam room, right? This is every pastor's concern that there would be people in the congregation who would say, I have faith, and they somehow convince themselves that they do when in fact they don't. That they would actually be dead spiritually because there's no life flowing from them. Because you know, it's not in what you say that counts. It's really not even in what you do. It's in what it does to you so that you do something with it. That's the truth. James continues and he says, But someone will say, another hypothetical situation here, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Two people talking. And one of them says, you know, I have faith, but here's the deal. I just like to keep my faith private. It's just for me. It's just so meaningful that I just have to keep it to myself. It's just so, so deep that I keep it inside. I don't talk about it. I don't, I don't show anybody that I'm a believer. I just keep it all to myself. I just hold it inside because it's too moving, too emotional, too private for me, and I don't have any outgoing demonstration of that faith in my life. Besides, you know, the culture we live in today, I wouldn't want to offend people by telling them that I believe. Look, that's all bull. I'm just going to call bull on it right now. You try that with your spouse. Honey, I just feel so much love to you. I mean, for you. I just feel it all inside. And it's just so real and just so personal, so meaningful to me. I just can't ever tell it to you. I'm just not ever going to say it to you. I mean, I just, it's just too deep and private to me. Yeah, right. That's not going to work out in the marriage, right? No spouse wants to hear that from the other spouse. Husbands don't want to hear that from their wife, and a wife doesn't want to hear that from their husband. It's just too meaningful to me, dear. I just can't share it. I just can't say I love you. I just can't demonstrate it anyway because it's just so private to me. And besides, I wouldn't want to offend anybody who's single today. You know, they're not married. I wouldn't want to offend them by talking about how much I love you because they might get offended or upset. You know, I mean, hey, you got to be careful of these days. That spouse is going to say, bull. You either love me and you, you live it out or you don't. You can't say it's so private that I can't share it. If you've had an experience with the living and powerful, redeeming God, and you can somehow keep that private inside your soul, you didn't have an experience with him because you can't keep that in. If he has radically transformed your life, if you have experienced freedom from all the guilt and shame and sin in your life, 
and you can somehow manage to keep that private in your soul, woo, you got Superman soul. Or you've hardened your heart, which are very, hmm. It's not meant to be kept private. Keeping your faith private is not a vital sign of spiritual life. If it's in you, it's got to flow out of you. It was never meant to be treasured and kept inside to a place where it never shows up. James continues and he says, You believe that there is one God. Good for you. You do well. Trophy for you. Participation trophy for you. Here's the level you've just arrived at. Even the demons believe and tremble. Participation trophy for you along with every demon. It's kind of frightening, really. Just because you say you believe the right things, that doesn't mean you have life in you either. Do you know what the demons believe? The demons believe that there is a God. The demons believe that he has a son, Jesus. The demons believe that there is a Holy Spirit, that there is a trinity. The demons believe that this son and this God and this spirit are all holy. The demons believe that this son, Jesus Christ, came to earth. The demons believe that he died for man. The demons believe that he was buried and rose again on the third day. The demons believe that he has given us his word and his word has authority and power. The demons believe in all of that. So if those are just things that you believe and that's all there is to your life and there's no transformation that's happened in your life and there's no evidence flowing out of your life, congratulations, you get a participation trophy just like every demon does. Just saying you believe all the right things does not mean you have life. Believing in God is not a vital sign of spiritual life. Because remember, in the body, our physical body, life comes in, the lungs put it in the blood, and it goes into every system of the body. If it stopped in the lungs and did not go to every system in the body, the body would be dead. Now, James chapter 2 gives several illustrations of this truth from the Old Testament. If we had about three more Sundays, I'd preach on those for this series, but I'm not going to. I want to skip on down to verse 26 where James, in James fashion, cuts right to the point. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, in other words, a physical body without breath in it. If there's no breath Coming from the person. If there's no breath in the person, their body is dead. He says, in the same way, faith without evidence or works is dead. So as the next part of our message today, in wrapping up, I want to talk about what are then spiritual vital signs. If you walk into the ER with breathing issues, they're going to do four tests on you. Here are our four tests today to see if you really do have life. We're about to do what Paul said to do in 2 Corinthians where we examine ourselves. We're about to put ourselves on the table. 
and let God do some searching. Let God do some evaluating. I'll remind you this morning, the goal of God and my desire is not to provide further condemnation, but provide truth so that you might truly have life and have it abundant, so that you might be breathing in real truth. I talked about the first test that they run, or one of the first tests they run at an ER is the EKG. It's an analysis of your heart to check the rhythm of your heart. What's the beat pattern? How effectively is it pulsing blood into the body? It's checking your heart, the health of your heart. The first spiritual vital sign today is related to your spiritual heart. And here it is. It's a desire to obey God's word. This is the first evidence of a person who truly is born again and has faith. And they really are living it out. I've chosen the words carefully here. Desire to obey God's word. I didn't say a desire to carry around God's word. I didn't say desire to read God's word, although that's important. But I've known people who carried around and read God's word, who did not have evidence of real faith in their life. They were not transformed. The issue and the value of life comes down to what you hear from him, you're obeying in love for him. First John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. The real evidence that you have faith is that you have a desire to hear from God that comes through his word and you have a desire to live that out and it's not a beating to you. It's not a, oh, I have to do this thing. Oh, I have to pray. Oh, I have to love my wife sacrificially. Oh, I have to love my children. Oh, I have to give to the church because that's what God's commanded me to tithe. Oh, hey, if obeying God is a beating to you, then you need to stop and evaluate your heart. A heart that's truly been transformed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ beats with desire to hear and obey. Hear and obey. The heart has two major sections to pump blood in and pump blood back up to the lungs. In and back out. Breathe it in, push it back out. This ought to be our rhythm. I breathe in what God says and I live it out. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. You breathe that in and you breathe that out at home. You do what God's word says. You live out what you're lifting up. And the heart beats in a rhythm continually. If there's something wrong with your rhythm, you need to get that checked out. If the beat has stopped, you need to get that checked out quickly. Because life 
has rhythm to it. The heart beats in rhythm. Do you have a rhythm of desire for obeying God? It's the evidence of life in you. It's the evidence that you understand his love, that you understand his truth, that you understand forgiveness. It beats with this rhythm. I want to know his word. I want to walk in his word. I want to obey it. Doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult at times. Doesn't mean I'm not going to have to pray for extra strength at times. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be a discipline at times. But you push past every one of those because you know you want to obey God. It's the evidence. This is our first vital sign this morning, that you have a desire. You may not be perfect at it. You may not be 100 at it, but you have a desire for it, a desire for obedience. The second vital sign this morning comes from the second test I told you about. When I went into the ER that day, uh, you know, they come at you with the needles, of course, and the needle to take some blood from my arm. And they did. And they took some blood and they went away because they want to test the toxicity of my blood. They want to look for whatever's in there that can tell them about what's going on in my body. And they can do that because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So they went away and they came back. They didn't say anything. They just made sure I got an IV pretty quick. And there wasn't a whole lot of information coming, <clears throat> and I'm waiting, and waiting, and waiting, which is, just happens sometimes at ERs. They came back later, after some time had passed, and they said, you know, when you first came in, uh, we were pretty concerned about your blood numbers. But once we got an IV in you, and we started monitoring your breathing, those numbers all changed, because I'd gotten dehydrated. And the toxicity in my blood wasn't so great in number at that point, but it got better. And they said as a result, with some other things, that they recognized you can go home. But the first thing that they noticed was there was some issues in my blood. It's dangerous to have issues in your blood because the life of the flesh is supposed to be in the blood. And my lungs are supposed to provide that life, that oxygen into the rest of the body. If you and I allow sin to remain in our life, it is like toxicity to your system. And it affects you. It'll damage relationships, your thought life, your ability to have peace and rest. You and I weren't designed to continue to walk in sin. In fact, 1 John 5, 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God, listen, does not continue in sin. Now, this does not mean that once you become a believer, you will never sin again. That's not what I'm saying today. Redemption does not make you sinless, but redemption should make you sinless. If you're carrying around in you the same level amount, depth of sin that you've had for years or decades, it's time to get a checkup. Something's not right. There ought to be less of sin in your thought patterns, 
in your ways of relating, and in your life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, which is what you and I are intended to do, not hide them, not toy with them, not protect them, but to confess them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is passionate for you to know less of what sin is like, less of the guilt, less of the shame, less of the stress, less of the burden, less of walking in yourself. This is the process. It's the evidence that someone has genuine faith. Someone who makes a, a profession of faith in a church and 20 years go by and nothing has changed about their life, they have to stop and question, am I truly saved? Because if you don't have evidence that you're breathing in, that's shown by what you breathe out, you've got to question, am I breathing at all? James is just that kind of guy, and so is John when he writes in 1 John. And so was the Apostle Paul. In Romans 6, he said, we were buried with him through baptism into a, a death, a death to who we were, an end, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in a newness of life. There ought to be something new and fresh about you. There ought to be a turning away from sin in your life. There ought to be something that just seems distasteful about it. There ought to be something that says, this isn't right. There ought to be something that says, I got to get away from this. It doesn't mean you're not going to face temptation. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be times when you fail. But in those moments, you confess it and you turn away from it and you walk up into this newness of life. That same resurrection power that brought Jesus up out of the grave is the same resurrection power working in us, if you believe. And that ought to lead to some newness. There ought to be some freshness in us. There ought to be something that says, I'm just, I just don't like the taste of that anymore. Our third vital sign this morning is based on a, a third test that they'll do if you go to the ER with breathing issues. They'll run a chest x-ray because they want to see what's going on below the surface. They want to see what you can't see. They want to see what they can't see naturally but their own eyes. And they'll take an x-ray and they'll come back because they want, to, they want to see, do you have pneumonia? Do you have fluid in the lungs? Are there some heart issues? They want to see what's going on because the lungs and the heart are what move the blood to every part of the body, every part of the body. And there'd be a problem if there was not life flowing to every part of the body. You know, your, your, your heart and your lungs know how to get blood evenly and consistently to every part of your body. They know how to get it down to your little toe, and they know how to get it to your pinky. Sometimes I wonder if Heather doesn't have a problem getting it down to her toes because she puts her toes on me in the middle of the night. Boom, it's cold. I don't know. Something's not flowing right in there or not, but whew, it's cold. Your body knows how to regulate and get it all to where it needs to go consistently. 
if one system in your body doesn't get the amount of oxygenated blood that it needs and requires, and it begins to fail, it will cause problems for the entire body. If your, if your nervous system stopped getting the blood supply that it needed, there'd be a problem. If your kidneys stopped getting the blood supply that they needed, there'd be a problem. But the body regulates so that the heart gets what it needs, the lymph node gets what it needs, the liver gets what it needs, the kidneys get what they need. Every system receives the life that they need. There's consistency. Every one of them is receiving the same amount of life. If there's inconsistency in the systems, it creates a problem in the life. And the same is true spiritually. One of the signs that proves there is true spiritual life is that there is a consistency between your public and your private lives. It shows up here and it shows up there. It shows up at work. It shows up at church. It shows up in a small group and it shows up in your living room with your family. There's consistency. It's the evidence of real faith. Jesus said, let your light so shine among people that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, there's a consistency that people see it. People on the highway with you see it. Whether you have a vertical sticker or not on your window. People at work see it. People at home see it. People in your neighborhood see it. It's consistent. It's the consistency that proves the, the validity of your faith. Remember Jesus said, they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When they see it consistently, it causes them to believe. So here's the deal. If your spouse sees how you act here and you go home and act completely different, guess who's going to have a hard time believing your faith is real? Your spouse. Inconsistency proves a lack of validity. If you act one way here toward your children, but when you get home, you act in a completely different fashion, and you are angry, and you're physical, and you're loud, and you're angry, but here you're sweet and you're kind, Guess who's not going to buy your faith? Your kids. They don't want inconsistency. They don't want duplicity. They will not buy what does not match. And the real evidence of real faith is a consistency of life between all that is public and all that is private. People like to think they can somehow manage dual lives. They like to think they can control one version of them here 
and another version of them at home and another version of them at work and another version of them with friends and another version of them on the highway. Look, if you're trying to play that game, I already know what's going on inside your heart. You're frustrated. You're angry. Jesus had already said, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll despise one and be loyal to the other. You can't play it both ways. You can't say it one way here and another way at home. In reality, one of these is really you. In reality, one of these you like. In reality, one of these is where you find your greater enjoyment. You'll hate the one and love the other. And the true evidence that you have real faith is you don't live a double life. There's consistency. That's what real life looks like. It shows up and it flows out. This is checking vital signs today. This is checking health today. Consistency is evidence you have life. Inconsistency means there's something wrong. Jesus was irritated. It's okay to use Jesus and irritated in the same sentence, by the way. Jesus was irritated with the Pharisees. It wasn't as much because of their sin, listen to me all the way through here, as much as it was their facade of saying, I haven't sinned. Sin can be dealt with. Sin can be confessed. Sin can be forgiven. But when you cover and deny and ignore and put on a mask, you know what kind of mask I'm talking about. You put on a fake facade. You cover what's really you. Then Jesus said, you are a hypocrite. You don't match. You're double. And double is never believed. Our fourth vital sign today comes from our friend, the pulse oximeter. I set him over here. The pulse oximeter tells us how much oxygen is in the blood. Now, I've stayed fascinated with this thing, just wondering, how in the world does it do that? I've looked online. I've read about it. It just says there's a little red light inside that shines through your skin and can detect how much oxygen is in the blood. That's just fascinating. Amazing technology. Which, by the way, my heart rate's still at 123. How much oxygen is in the blood? How much life is in my system? How much is flowing through me? Our fourth vital sign today is this, that there is ongoing evidence of change. This is evidence that you have real faith. That you are not who you used to be. That there is 
constant change happening in you. If you have spiritual life in you, then your attitudes should be changing. Your thoughts, your emotions, the way you relate to people, they ought to be changing. The way you see struggles in your life, the depth of your faith, the depth of your worship, the depth of your understanding of Scripture, the depth of your likeness to Christ ought to be changing. Because here's why. God is in the process of conforming you to the image of his son. This is what he is about. He's in the process of changing you. He didn't save you to give you a fire insurance policy so that you could live in sin the rest of your life. He came to redeem you and free you so that you would know life and life abundant, so that you'd be free from who you were. There ought to be change. And the fact that there's ongoing change in your life means you are continually submitting to him and saying, God, I surrender to you. I want to be changed by you. Keep changing me, Lord. I'm breathing in who you are, what you say, so that I can breathe out evidence in my life that I'm not like I used to be. Is there change in your life? Do you look different than you used to look? I don't mean just because you aged. Would people in your life say, boy, they are not at all what they used to be. There's some things that are just so different about them. There's some things that are not like what they used to be. There's some things that have changed about the way they talk. There's some things that have changed about their habits. There's some things that have changed about who they run with. There's some things that have changed about their priorities. There's some things that have changed about how they spend their money. There's some things that have changed about how they see church. There's some things that have changed about how they worship. There's some things that have changed about them and scripture. There's some things that have changed about their own disciplines in their life. There's change, ongoing evidence of change. This is one of the evidences that you have real life. So with this exam today, you have to ask the question, do I have real life in me today? Is that life flowing through me? Am I truly changing? Am I living consistently? Am I turning away from sin? And do I have a genuine desire to obey what God says? You and God alone know the answer to those questions. I'd ask you to bow your heads today. And I know that there are some who would say, I, in all honesty, have none of those evidences in my life. I've played a game. I've put on a front. I've even said I was a believer, but I have absolutely none of that. Today, if that's you, the Bible offers hope. It says, confess your sins 
And if you do, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be faithful to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So confess that today. Lord, I have been living a lie. I've been fake news. There's something wrong in me. And God, I confess that to you today. Would you make me new? Would you forgive me of my sin? I want to follow you with my life. I haven't been. But today I breathe in for the first time, truly, your forgiveness, your hope, your love for me. If you're here this morning, and that's you, so that I can pray for you and so that you can have a, a tangible way of expressing it. If you are breathing in the forgiveness of Jesus and saying, I'm believing today, I'm through playing the game, I believe for the first time today. Would you raise your hand? Child or adult, whoever you are, I'm believing today, I'm through playing the game. Just raise your hand. I'm not gonna come call you out. I'm not gonna say anything to you. I just wanna pray for you. I know there are also those in the room today. You put your faith in Jesus already. You have life in you. But today, the exam has been a little bit painful because you've realized you hadn't been letting his breath in and you sure hadn't breathed it out because you can't breathe out what you're not breathing in. And today, you're ready to make a new commitment of breathing in life of walking in him and intentionally choosing to breathe him out. If that's you today, would you raise your hand? I am receiving and believing and I'm recommitting today to breathe in and breathe out. Amen. Amen. This is what God's called us to. Life. Breathing in. Breathing out. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word that is alive, that is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce all the way down to the division of soul and spirit between what's me and what's you. And today you're calling your people to a new level of living and breathing in you. I thank you that you are changing us. You are calling us to life. You want us to breathe in what you are pouring out from heaven today. And so we open wide our spirit, our soul, and our life to take you in. We'll obey what you say, we'll desire who you are, and we will live out what you tell us. We're grateful today, Father. Thank you for seating us in heavenly places with our Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Stand with us as we sing today.